0: Welcome to Impact Medicom's podcast series on COVID-19 immunization. I'm your host, Anna Christofides. In this episode, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on immunocompromised patients with a focus on hematologic malignancies and how we can better protect these people. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Carolyn Owen, who is an Associate Professor in the Division of Hematology and Hematological Malignancies at the University of Calgary. Hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much, Dr. Owen, for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 immunization and its role in protecting our most vulnerable populations, including those who have hematologic malignancies. So to start, I wanted to ask, what is the usual response to COVID-19 vaccination just in the general population? So uh, most of the data
1: we have about COVID-19 vaccination responses obviously relates to The mRNA vaccines, those are the two that are are most commonly used in Canada now, the the Pfizer or the Moderna. And responses are very high in the normal immunocompetent population. Old and young patients obtaining 90% of people getting good responses. Uh, With the new Omicron variant, the protection from the vaccine seems to be a little bit less. Uh, Patients are protected against severe infection, but they're not protected as well against catching the virus at all. That rate, even with a booster, seems to be a bit lower in the 50 to 60% range.
0: Great. Thank you. And are there certain groups of people in the population who would have a greater risk of serious outcomes if they were to be infected with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, so I think that that data hasn't actually changed an awful lot since uh, COVID-19 was first described. And the major risk factor for severe outcomes, including hospitalizations or death, is actually age. So especially patients who live in nursing homes or other long-term care facilities, probably from the congregate living situations, but mostly those people also are advanced age and they have additional medical problems. So cardiac and lung disease, renal failure, these sort of uh, comorbidities can really add to patients' individual risks.
0: Right. And are there a group of these people who have medical conditions that would be considered to be immunocompromised?
1: So when we talk about immunocompromised, we talk about patients whose immune systems don't work as well. And that would obviously worry us that they might not be able to fight off an infection as efficiently or also that they might not respond to vaccination and be protected against infection as efficiently. At the beginning with COVID-19, we all we obviously thought our immunosuppressed patients would be at much higher risk of severe infection and outcomes. But actually, uh, I think that most of the, the risk of severe infection still relates to age and other medical issues. Whereas the major harm from being immunocompromised is that you don't learn to have protection against the virus. So if you catch it, you could still become reinfected at a later date. Or if you get vaccinated, you might not be protected and then you're still at risk of catching the infection. And then obviously some of these immunocompromised patients are also older. And so then they still they could have a, a very high risk of severe outcomes. So when we're talking about immunocompromised, we're talking about people who are on drugs that stop their immune system from working properly. So post-solid organ transplant and patients with cancers are the and patients with inflammatory like rheumatological diseases, inflammatory arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. Those are the big groups, as well as patients who've had any kind of stem cell transplant, and then some people with primary so congenital immune deficiencies where their immune systems aren't healthy to start with, and then advanced or untreated HIV, which is a fairly rare situation nowadays in Canada because HIV is very effectively treated.
0: Right. And what percentage of Canadians would fit into this category of immunocompromised? I think as per Statistics
1: Canada uh, recent data, it's about 14%. So it's not rare, but it's obviously a very large minority, we could
0: say. And so what difference do we see in vaccine responses in these people that are immunocompromised? So the important principle of a vaccine
1: is obviously that you're exposed to a part of the either attenuated virus or just a part of the protein that the virus expresses in order for your body to see this and then develop a protective response against it. If you're immune system doesn't work in the first place, then you don't develop a, a response to the vaccine and you don't develop any protection. And then this would happen if you don't have a good T-cell response or if you don't have a good B-cell response, which are the two different sort of immune responses to vaccination that we think about. So it really depends on the nature of the immunodeficiency and there's different data in different populations and we're gaining more and more data. Obviously, this has been studied a lot during the, the pandemic. So patients who have rheumatological diseases um, like rheumatoid arthritis and IBD have a, a moderately reduced vaccine effectiveness somewhere between sometimes 60 or 70% even after the two doses but patients with certain kinds of blood cancers or certain drug exposures and patients even with solid organ transplant the rate of vaccine responses is reported as even lower so certain blood cancer patients exposed to anti CD20 monoclonal antibodies have no reported response to vaccines up to one year from the last therapy. And the solid organ transplant data I saw recently was only about a 40% response rate, even sometimes after a third or fourth dose, the level goes up, but it's not particularly impressive, even at four doses.
0: So I guess if these patients aren't able to mount a, a response to the vaccine, it must be very difficult for them to sort of go about in the world and risk exposure so what is some of the psychological impact that might be placed on these people?
1: So I, I think that's a, a discussion that's come up recently more and more, obviously, with the lifting of restrictions, because patients at the beginning of the pandemic were really happy to sort of lock themselves away at home to protect themselves. And most of the population were happy to, to maintain physical distancing and, and, and try to help protect others. But I think with time, obviously, People have become very tired of this and being housebound and not allowed to interact with other people is really very isolating and uh, depressing. I had a patient just the other day say that, you know, even getting together with family members, the family members have children. And, you know, if you think that you're being super cautious yourself, you still need to have some interaction with people who are important to you. And so, you know, if you're 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 staying at home, working from home uh, wearing a mask wherever you go, even ordering groceries in from outside. The, these people still, um, it's very isolating to not be able to have friendly or family I- interactions. And I do think that uh, that now, obviously, for people who are of working age, when uh, return to work options have have come up and people are often being mandated to return to work, there's also a huge amount of fear associated with now returning to environments at work where you might be at risk of getting sick.
0: Yeah, that must be very, very difficult. I can't even imagine. So I'm just thinking, uh, being a hemato-oncologist, I wanted to ask you some questions specific to those patients. What are some of the risk factors do those patients specifically have? So patients with blood cancers, uh, those with B-cell
1: malignancies, the B-cells are the producers of antibodies. So in normal B-cells make our antibodies. And several of the chronic B-cell neoplasms are associated with poor antibody production that has nothing to do with COVID-19 or vaccination. And so patients with this secondary hypogamma globulinemia don't make good antibodies. And so before any consideration of vaccination, we know that they are very unlikely to develop good antibody responses to vaccination when they don't develop good antibody responses to anything. And then obviously, There's also sometimes T-cell deficiency, more commonly related to the drugs that we give than often to the disease itself. So most of the lymphomas and leukemias, myeloma, have uh, a greater impact, I would say, on the B-cells than on the T-cells, but our drugs frequently impact both. And then hematopoietic stem cell transplant or bone marrow transplant, obviously the entire immune system is suppressed and then the new cells are, are uh, given time to, to, to repopulate. Well, all, feet, all um, functions of the immune system are impaired. So mostly they wouldn't have B or T cell function for several months after the transplant. So they're the very, very high risk group.
0: And so what can we do to further protect these patients? If you can talk a little bit about potential prophylaxis therapies and so on. So at present, unfortunately,
1: we don't have what we would consider to be effective prophylaxis therapies available. And by prophylaxis, we think about treatments that would prevent people from catching infection in the first place. I mean, we can give IVIG, which is intravenous antibodies from other people, which can help a bit with general immunity, but it isn't specific to COVID-19. And the level of COVID-19 antibody protection from that sort of pooled product would be very low. There are Companies who are trying to develop antibodies specific against COVID 19 that could be used as a pre exposure prophylaxis. So, trying to give patients antibodies that would help them not catch COVID 19. And in a, in a perfect world, that would be the best therapy. And we are hopeful that some of those will be approved by Health Canada in the coming months. At present, the best prophylaxis we have is just against getting severe infection if you know you have active infection. And so patients in Alberta and other provinces, if they have a positive COVID-19 PCR test, they're eligible for the antiviral drug, the trade name is Paxlovid, or for citrovimab, which is an antibody therapy against the virus. Um, But those are approved, as I said, only for people who know they have COVID-19 It's supposed to be given very soon after onset of symptoms. And the goal is to prevent the disease from becoming severe. It's not to prevent you from catching it in the first place. So I think that patients would feel more comfortable if they knew they had a therapy that would help prevent them from catching the virus in the first place.
0: And how might some of those types of prophylaxis therapies work? If you can describe the difference, for example, between passive and active immunization.
1: So active immunization would relate to sort of our own bodies seeing parts of the virus through like, vaccination. So you and I will have received our COVID-19 vaccine and the mRNA uh, is the messenger that's telling our body to make the protein that is similar to the protein or the same appearance as the actual spike protein of the virus. And so now the body sees this protein that it hasn't seen before. It's a foreign product and It makes an immune response against it. So we develop both T-cells recognizing this protein and activating B-cells that uh, sort of latch, make antibodies that latch onto the protein and clear it from the system so that if in future we're exposed to the virus and we catch the virus and it gets into our system, our body already is primed for that and our T-cells and our B-cells are ready to quickly neutralize the virus. So, passive immunization is literally giving patients sort of medication that is synthetic or pooled antibody product. And so, you're not activating their T cells or B cells, you're giving them the end product that they should have been able to make themselves, but they, they can't.
0: That's a really good explanation. Thank you. I'm so just thinking about your own patients. Can you share any stories of patients under your care who you feel could have benefited from? Some kind of additional protection?
1: So it's interesting. If you'd asked me that question a couple months ago, I would have been able to think hard and come up with a couple examples. But asking now after the Omicron, the stories are sort of too many to choose between. So we've had at least weekly, more than one patient per week with positive COVID 19 infection testing since Christmas. Many of these patients are patients who are on active therapy and coming into the cancer center regularly, and they're being very cautious. And yet, still, they've obviously caught it either through hospital exposure or through family exposure. Some people know their cause of uh, exposure, and that can be quite difficult and cause a lot of interfamilial strife. I mean, there's stories of, you know, an adult child being uh, opposed to vaccination and coming home around Christmas time and infecting an immunosuppressed parent in the house. Obviously, that can lead to a lot of uh, anger and resentment, especially we have had a couple of patients who have died of infection. And then uh, the last thing you need if you're suffering that grief is also to worry about whether you're in some way responsible for the patient having acquired COVID-19. So obviously, if we knew that we had protective mechanisms that would allow people to be able to spend time with their family, even if the family is being careful, but not 100% certain that they wouldn't be able to catch infection from them. And that would you know, be hugely valuable for all of our,
0: our human cancer patients. Yeah, that definitely puts it all into perspective, doesn't it? Very difficult situations, I'm sure. I'm just wondering, you know, are you working on any initiatives that would help to create awareness about prophylaxis in this patient group?
1: So interestingly, we are working on a manuscript, a paper, which obviously will mostly be received by healthcare practitioners discussing the prophylactic options that are available and the the reason for the need, Uh, just like we're discussing this population of patients who mostly are all fully vaccinated and very committed to doing everything they can to protect themselves And yet, despite having done all that was asked, they remain unprotected and at high risk of bad outcomes. So, you know, it's one thing to to have decided not to be vaccinated and to accept that risk, but to be uh, unlucky enough to have developed lymphoma, which isn't your fault, or leukemia, it's not your fault in the first place. And then you did all that you were asked and you went and got three or four, four doses of vaccine. And at the end of the day, you have no protection. Those people, you know, they deserve the help that we can provide them with these sort of prophylactic therapies. Hopefully we can advertise this even more broadly. If the antibody pre-exposure prophylaxis is funded in Canada, hopefully we can make it available to those most needy patients very quickly and we can notify them of the possibility. I'm still surprised that the pre- or the post-exposure prophylaxis that is currently available, the citrovimab and the paxlivid, Many patients don't seem to know about it, and we keep trying to tell everybody, but we don't have a really good mechanism of notifying every patient at the cancer center when a a new therapy becomes available. So we do really want to try to make sure that this is more broadly known, that hopefully that new therapy is coming soon, so that when it's available, patients can get it right away. Because obviously, to prevent infection, you need to give it to them before they're continuing to be exposed to the high rates of infection in the community now.
0: Well, I hope uh, those initiatives can help to raise the awareness of this issue. It's great that you're working on those things. And just wondering now, do you have any additional advice that you would give to physicians who are caring for these patients?
1: Um, I think the most important advice is to recognize the risk. I had a patient just yesterday uh, call into the cancer center and ask for a, a, a work letter to protect her from sort of having to go back to work. So now that the restrictions have been lifted, she has been working from home and she actually was working even at the end of her treatment. So some patients obviously, you know, have difficulties returning to work after cancer therapy, but some people are highly motivated to maintain their productivity and, you know, they're not trying to escape work and she's been working. But now that there's a return to office requirement, she is not protected by vaccination And she asked her family doctor, and the family doctor said, You've had two doses of vaccine. You should go back to work. And that was the opposite to what we were telling her. So I think that it is important for people to recognize that having the vaccine in immunocompromised patients does not mean that they are safe. And the patients need to know that. And their family members and other physicians, healthcare providers need to understand that so that we sort of protect them from outside, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I really want to thank you so much, Dr. Owen, for this really enlightening discussion. And uh, thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck with the the paper and all the initiatives that you're working on.